Hey, before I get into our text today, tomorrow's Juneteenth. That's short for June uh, 19th. And it marks the day when uh, federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865 to announce that slavery had come to an end uh, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So it honors and celebrates the end of slavery and is considered the longest-running holiday for African-Americans, and it's a great day to celebrate, uh, and also a, a day of invitation to think about the ways where the powers of slavery are still at work in various ways, and our commitment to follow a God who leads uh, all of us into various layers of freedom, and so maybe a, a day tomorrow of celebration, remembrance, is also an invitation to follow Jesus faithfully into this world, and in this world. Uh, we are continuing a series today on God and our bodies, or, uh, yeah, exploring the connections between spirituality and sexuality. We are in, we're in week number eight. I'm so glad you're still here. Um, <laughs> week number eight, I explored initially on week one, and if you, if you were not there for this series, I want to invite you to go back on YouTube or our podcast to check out week one, where I give an overview of where we were going we talked about sexual brokenness. We've talked about shame and sexuality. We've talked about lust. We've talked about marriage and singleness and uh, friendship. And today I'm going to talk about, I want to step out of kind of the our, or individual or interpersonal uh, realities as it relates to sexuality and step back into a larger cultural frame of how we engage the world and think about matters of sexuality. And really the question, the fundamental question is, what is the role of the church in relationship to the culture around us? What is the role of the church in relationship to the culture around us? And how we answer this question will determine how we show up in the world and what values and priorities we give ourselves to. And so I want to talk a bit about sexuality and the culture wars and the church's relationship to the culture around us. Our passage this morning is out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51 through 56. You can follow in your Bible, follow on your phone or on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I want to pay attention to those verses right there. Verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture, the gift of your word. And now may we be formed by it, formed by your spirit, Formed by the way of Jesus. And so give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive all we have for us, all you have for us this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 
Amen. In the last few weeks, there's been some businesses that we're very familiar with that have been in the news because of Pride Month. Target has been in the news because of its Pride collection. Chick-fil-A has been in the news accused of being woke because it hired someone to be the head of their diversity equity and inclusion department. This is not the first time Chick-fil-A has been in the news. In 2012, Chick-fil-A was in the news because its president spoke in favor of traditional marriage, which led to protests from advocates of same-sex marriage. This month, there's been other protests from the other side because they hired someone from diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so Chick-fil-A has been receiving it on both ends of the spectrum. All I know is that their fries are awesome. Their fries are awesome. Now, these news stories are not new to those of us who live in the United States. In fact, Whether or not there are actual wars between the United States and another country, whether that that is true or not, happening or not, you could always expect in this nation that there is always another war going on. Every single month, there is some form of a culture war that exists in our nation. A culture war is a cultural conflict between Social groups and the struggle for dominance of their values, beliefs, and practices. And this is what we see on a month to month basis, increasingly so, I would add, especially in the last decade. And it looks something like this one particular group has convictions, has beliefs, has values, practices, and preferences. And then another group introduces a different way of values, a different way of believing, a different way to live out life. And this, lives to, this leads to a kind of conflict in all areas of our lives that spills over into our churches, that spills over into our families, that spills over into our friendships, that spills over into our workplace. And this has happened increasingly because our culture is rapidly changing. When you look at the kind of change as it relates to information, the access that we have to information, the ways that the world is increasingly connected because of social media, because of the internet, when you think of the rapid changes in sexuality in the past decade, it makes a lot of sense why there's a lot of friction and polarization in our nation. It's hard to keep up with the rapid changes. It's hard to keep up with the terms and the terminology. It's hard to keep up with the changes that are happening all across the board. And for some people, the rapid change is a welcome sign. It's something to be received with joy. And for others, they see this rapid change as a sign that the end is near. How do we navigate this reality? How do we do it as a local congregation at New Life Fellowship Church? And so the question that we have that I want to explore is how is our church, how is the church to relate to the larger culture around us? And again, how we answer this question will determine the scope and the nature of our mission. 
It will determine how we show up in the world. It will determine the ways we have conversations with people in our workplaces, in our families, in our community. And I think our passage in Luke chapter 9 is a wonderful passage to get at this reality that this is not a new phenomenon, that something like this has been going on for a long time. In our text, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, which is to say he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's about to take on the sins of humanity on his body. He's about to demonstrate the love of God and power over evil forces by taking on the sins of the world on the cross. And as he's about to go to Jerusalem, Jesus says to his disciples he wants to go through a Samaritan village on his way to Jerusalem. And you can be sure that when people hear Jesus' invitation or command to go through Samaria, through a Samaritan village, you know that people are a bit unsettled. Because Samaritan in the ancient world, Samaritan 2,000 years ago, was not a good thing in the way that we think about good Samaritan in our culture. If you lose your wallet in Queens and someone finds your wallet, gets in contact with you, and your money is still intact, that's a miracle. But beyond it being a miracle, you say, wow, that's a good Samaritan. If you help someone cross the street or, or help someone with their groceries, someone looks and says, wow, you are a good Samaritan. We have good Samaritan hospital. When we think of Samaritan, it's associated with goodness. But 2,000 years ago, there was nothing good about Samaritans. A Samaritan was a bad person. For Jewish people, they were the enemies, and they were very suspicious of each other. For example, in Judaism, Gentile sinners and Samaritans were not considered neighbors. And so, when they heard the command, love your neighbor, they said, that's easy, because Samaritans are not even considered a neighbor. Easy one to get around. The Samaritan was publicly cursed in their synagogues. They said things like, uh, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine. The Samaritans were excluded from the afterlife. They did not just want to see them in this life. They didn't want to see them in the afterlife either. There were phrases like, if you do good, know to whom you do it. And do not help the Samaritan. And so Jesus knows this, and he sends his disciples to a Samaritan village to teach them a lesson. Jesus sends his disciples to prepare the way for his coming prepare the way for his arrival and so they go ahead of jesus let them know the king of kings the lord of lords is on his way the king the lord jesus is on his way and the people in the samaritan village did not want to receive jesus they did not want to receive Jesus and the way of his kingdom. James and John, these two disciples, are so offended that they would not receive Jesus and his teachings and his way that they want to call down fire on the people who don't believe as they do. Does that sound familiar to you? And so I love how casual they are about it. They're like, hey, Lord, should we just call fire down? I know we've seen this in the Old Testament where a prophet would just call down fire on his enemies. How about you just call fire down on these people who won't receive you? And it says that Jesus rebukes them. 
Now, they believed that it was their job to make sure that people received Jesus. It was their job to make sure that that particular village was oriented around Jesus and the way of his kingdom. And anyone who doesn't receive this is to be eliminated, exterminated, erased. And there's much that is different from our day in Queens to 2,000 years ago. But the same impulse in James and John lives deeply in the church. And when I read this story, I think we get a snapshot of the larger culture around us. And the fundamental question is, what is the role of the church in society? And the way we answer that question reveals a lot about our understanding of the Bible, reveals a lot about our understanding of Jesus, and our understanding of the teachings of Jesus and what he calls us to. To explore this, I think it's helpful to offer a few postures, a few different ways that the church often relates to culture. And I want to tell you from, from the onset that I'm going to offer four postures. The first three, I believe, are inconsistent with the way of Jesus. And then I'm going to invite you to consider a fourth possibility of what it means to follow Jesus in the middle of this culture. Are you with me? The first culture, the first posture that we have that the, of, of average relates to the church and culture is the church against culture. The church against culture. And it's a posture that many people are familiar with, and it goes something like this. The world is dangerous. The culture is dangerous, and it is heading in the wrong direction. Therefore, we must do all that we can to be against it. Now, I don't want to be naive, because there are things in our world that are very troubling. But this posture, when it's the be-all and end-all of the church leads us to seeing our presence in the world as simply being against. And when the church is known more for what it is against than what it is for, it leads to all kinds of condemnation and judgmentalism. And what animates, what fuels this church-against-culture impulse in us is anger. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. The culture is dangerous. We need to be against it. And what often fuels this is anger. And I imagine that some of you watching online, some of you in this room right now, that you look at the world and the changes that are going on in our culture as it relates to sexuality, as it relates to larger issues, and what you feel is anger. Anger. The second posture is church escaping culture. Church against culture, church escaping culture, and this is the posture that many of us are familiar with as well. I remember attending a Pentecostal church, and Pentecostals really tend to uh, veer in this direction of escaping culture, the way that Pentecostals understand holiness and being separate from the world. I had a conversation with a Pentecostal brother. I don't know if he was serious or if he was joking, but, but he said there was a reason why Christians shouldn't go to movies. And I said, what, why shouldn't Christians go to movies? And he said, because if Jesus comes, he can't find you. It's too dark in there. He can't find you. And I thought... I don't know if he was serious or not to this day. And so I thought, okay, uh, all, all right, all right. Now, Jesus tells his disciples that they are to be in the world, but not of the world. 
But many people have interpreted that to mean we must do what we can to escape the culture around us, and this has many forms of application. For example, we see some of this when it comes to parenting our children in a world that is rapidly changing around sexuality. Many parents are taking their kids out of public schools because of fear of indoctrination. And I think that's actually a very good conversation to have. But for our purposes today, it's important to note that many people opt for total disengagement, and often what's fueling that kind of escape culture is fear. I'm against culture, and what fuels it is anger. I want to escape culture, and what happens is that's animated by fear. But there's a third way, a third posture of existing in the world, and this is church transforming culture. Church against culture, church escaping culture, church transforming culture. And this is a posture that might lead to the most debates between people. Because many Christians believe that it is the, the role of the church to transform culture. And by that, what is meant, that our culture must become more and more Christian. In fact, this church transforming culture language is often really about Christianizing our culture. There's an impulse in many Christians to make the symbols of Christianity prominent in our culture. This is why many people want, like, the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. This is why many people want, whether people agree with Jesus or not, there to be prayer in schools. We want people to pray in the name of Jesus. Whether or not they believe in Jesus for Christians, it doesn't matter. If you knew what was right for you, you would pray this way. That's the language. That's the way that people think about it. Therefore, we need prayer in schools. Therefore, we need the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. We need the symbols of Christianity to reflect this culture. And the goal for Christians, then, is to have the banner of Christianity over the state. And what inevitably happens then is that the transformation of culture happens through dominance and by coercion. It's our way or the highway. Now, what makes this really challenging, friends, as you already know, is we live in a pluralistic society in which lots of people could care less about what we believe. People could care less about Jesus as Lord and Savior. And yet the way of church transforming culture, what is it animated by? Pride, arrogance. We know what is right for this culture. And we are going to let you know it, has, it must be transformed. And what transformation often means is Christianizing of this culture. But here's the tension I want you to hear. Jesus tells his disciples to go out into the world and to make disciples of all nations. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to make every nation Christian, but to make disciples of the nations. What I think happens is we have interpreted that to make every nation Christian in such a way where transformation is no longer having by, happening by invitation and the transformation of the Spirit, but by dominance and coercion. And when this is the case, the church actually does great damage in the world. Why do people believe this? In many ways, because many Christians believe that America was founded as 
a Christian nation. And so if that's your starting point, it makes a lot of sense for people to say, we must bring it back to what God originally intended it to be. But this country was never a Christian nation. It was a nation of Christians, but what is not a, a Christian nation. We're, we're, we're celebrating Juneteenth tomorrow, okay? Uh, uh, Christians are not called to enslave other people. That is not a Christian thing to do. That's not a Christian way of living. And so while the United States has been a nation of Christians, it has not been a Christian nation. And so what animates this culture wars are those three things. Listen, anger, fear, arrogance. And listen, friends, whenever a relationship is marked by anger and fear and pride, that relationship is not going well. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that any relationship that's marked by fear and anger and arrogance or pride is not going to end well. And the same applies to our public discourse. Anything that's animated by fear, anger, or pride is not going to end well. And so what happens is we get this mixture uh, of, of arrogance and, and fear and anger, and that, be, that, that makes the secret sauce for the culture wars. That is the soup that we are drinking from. A, a bowl that is informed by anger and fear and by arrogance. And what happens is followers of Jesus then get caught up in the culture wars. And the question is, how do we, by the power of the Spirit and the good news of the gospel, get freed from its entrapment? And so what I want to do for our purposes here, before I talk about the fourth way that I believe Jesus calls us to is I want to ask a really fundamental question. How do we free ourselves from the culture wars? How do you know if you're trapped in the culture wars? Especially as it relates to sexuality and our larger culture. And so I want to offer a few kind of signs that you know you're trapped in the culture war. The, the first sign to get a sense as to whether you're trapped or not is this. We carry a God is with us, but not with them impulse. God is with us, but not with them impulse. One of the most dangerous things to presume is who God is with and who God is not with. And people of faith have gotten in trouble regarding this for centuries. As human beings, we have this remarkable, uncanny ability to make definitive judgments on seeing things from the surface. And I'm glad that I'm not the only one. I'm glad that people who actually know God have this impulse as well. I think about the prophet Samuel. You know Samuel, the great prophet Samuel. One day he's looking for the next king, and, he, and God says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse because the next king is in this house. And he sees all the sons, and they line up, and he sees the tall, good-looking one. He goes, this must be the next king. Oh, and, and the Lord says, that's not the king. And he sees the next tall, next best-looking, that must be the king. And then God says to Samuel, Samuel, you keep looking at the outer appearance. God doesn't see, God looks at the heart. Basically saying, the ways that we make decisions in the world is often so narrow, and we miss it. And we often have this impulse, God is with us, but not with them. And when we fall into this trap, we live self-righteously. 
everyone then becomes part of a very neat system of compartmentalization to determine who is in and who is out. Straight people, in. Gay people, out. Republicans, in. Democrats, out. Democrats, in. Republicans, out. And what we find in the ministry of Jesus is this ongoing surprise that who God says is in is often different from the religious leaders and how they believe who was in and who was out. For example, there's a phrase that Jesus says to the religious leaders. He says, I want to let you know that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you do. And they're like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? Why? Because Jesus' understanding of who's in and who's out just might be a little different from how we classify and categorize things. In fact, like in the book of Joshua, God lets Joshua know the question is not on whose side am I on. The question is, are, are you on this side here? And so you know you are caught if you carry this God is with us but not with them impulse. Secondly, you're caught in it if we no longer see image bearers to be engaged but threats to be eliminated. And this is what's driving the world today. For James and John, there was only one option. You don't believe like we do? You need to be eliminated, exterminated, call fire down on their head. And when we create neat classifications of who's in and who's out, it actually becomes justifiable to do whatever we want and to treat people however we want in the name of Jesus. And what this reveals in us is that we're no longer seeing image bearers. We're seeing now swaths of people that's leading us into the hands of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6 is an important passage for Christians because Paul is naming the ways that demonic powers are at work in the world. And I want to suggest that powers and principalities are evil spiritual forces that get attached to individuals, ideologies, and institutions with three goals. Deception, depersonalization, and division. And I want to talk a moment about depersonalization. What does that mean? We no longer see individuals and their unique journey. We no longer see individuals and their unique histories, their struggles, their, their, their own uniqueness. All we see are large swaths of people. And when you don't see individuals anymore, it actually becomes very easy to demonize people. This is why one of the greatest gifts of a local church is to know the stories of people. One of the greatest gifts of the local church is to be proximate to people. This doesn't mean that we agree across the board on everything. This doesn't mean that what we believe to be true, we must adjust our own convictions. But it does mean that the closer you get to someone and their own story, the harder it is for you to demonize them. But you can demonize people from a distance very easily. And so you know you're caught in it when we no longer see image bearers, but we simply see threats and what happens is it leads to this third reality that we believe we're fighting for truth so our hatred is justified truth we're out for truth therefore our hatred is justified 
But here's the challenge. We can fight for truth in ways that are totally inconsistent with Jesus and the way of his kingdom. This doesn't mean we can't hold to convictions. This doesn't mean that we cannot come to a particular conclusion about Holy Scripture. This doesn't mean that we can't disagree with people about matters as relates to sexuality. This doesn't mean that we can't engage in honest intellectual discussion, but it does mean that the way we hold on to truth is to be counterbalanced with grace. This is why I love about our Lord Jesus. The Bible says in the book of John that he is full of grace and truth. Our Lord, full of grace and truth. And Christianity in the United States is often marked by this pervasive nature to have Christianity mark our culture without having Christ permeate our being. Grace and truth. When I think about this, I've used this from time to time. There's just this like little diagram here. When there's high grace and low truth, this is what happens to us. When, when there's high grace and low truth, that can lead to enabling. When there's low truth and low grace, it can lead to kind of indifference in the ways we respond. When there's high truth and low grace, it can lead to condemnation. But when there's high truth and high grace, it leads to the kind of love. The kind of love that's not marked by sentimentality. The kind of love that's hard, the kind of love that's discerning, the kind of love that's cruciform. It's the love of Jesus, full of grace and truth. And so whenever it says, I'm out for truth, we must be mindful of how we even carry that truth. I think about the, my, one of my favorite theologians, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He says that truth just for oneself, truth spoken in enmity and hate, is not truth but a lie. For truth brings us into God's presence, and God is love. Truth is either the clarity of love or it is nothing. Number four, how do you know you're caught in this? We believe that political power is necessary to make most of the gospel. And in many ways, this is the end of the culture wars. The goal of the culture wars is to get power, political power, legislative power. Now, there's some nuance here because what I hear what I'm saying, I'm not saying that we are not to be engaged politically as followers of Jesus. There's actually much good that emerges out of political engagement. I think about the, the famous words of Dr. King. Dr. King once said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. A law can't make someone love, but it can keep someone from lynching me. And so political engagements can lead to the kind of justice and love publicly that our society desperately needs. But here's what I want to name. It's often the case that many people believe until we can get political power, we are not really, the gospel cannot really go forth. And we fail to see that the history of Christianity is this. The church has flourished most when it has not been in political power. The church has grown and flourished the most throughout history when it is not calling the shots politically, when it is marginal in the community, 
That's when the church has really taken on the kind of power that we see in the book of Acts and in other places throughout history. And so the political climate is one that's marked by dominance, control, manipulation, and fear. And yet, the church is to be different. Number five, and finally, how do we know we're trapped in this? Well, fear is the primary lens through which we see the world. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there are legitimate reasons to be concerned and fearful. I think about our nation. There are legitimate concerns of fascism, legitimate concerns of religious liberty being eliminated on college campuses, where churches or college campuses have a particular theological view, and those campuses are being threatened because they're saying you cannot hold that particular view here and not welcome everyone else who might be different. There is legitimate concern about religious liberty. There is legitimate concern about how climate change is being handled. Fear as it relates to healthcare. But what I'm getting at here is that there is often a destructive power leveraged by social and political forces that exist to keep you in fear. That exists to keep you paranoid. It's a social and political strategy. You know, it reminds me of Monsters, Inc. Are you familiar with Monsters, Inc.? <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. In Monsters, Inc., the kids, the monsters would scare the kids at night because their screams powered the city. If they could get children to be afraid, that was the current, that was the energy source of the city. And when I think about our, there are a lot of monsters, friends, trying to keep us afraid. The media profits off of fear. Politicians use fear as a strategy for votes. In 2016, Trump and Clinton said something very similar. They said, Trump said, the terrorism in our cities threaten our very way of life. I alone can fix this. And then Hillary said, I'm the last thing standing between you and the apocalypse. <laughs> really? <laughs> now, these two are so different from each other. But in this respect, they're tag team people. They're on the same team, driving people through fear. And the church has often been marked by fear. And what happens when you are dr driven by fear is that it drives out love. This is why 1 John, it says, perfect love casts out fear. The inverse is our reality. Cultural fear drives out love. And most Christians are often known for their fears than for their love. When we are fearful and living in fear, what begins to happen is our relationships with other people are marked by self-protection. Other people are regarded with suspicion. We see the world not through the lens of love, but through the lens of survival. And this instinct leads to violence. And so fear is not to form our social imagination as followers of Jesus. 
And what Jesus is inviting us into is a different reality, not church against culture, not church escaping culture, not church trying to transform culture, especially in the way that I'm talking about it here. What I'm talking about, and I believe Jesus invites the church into, is church as an alternative to culture. The church is not to be found in the middle of a left-right world. It's often the case where people go, well, the church shouldn't be on the right, and the church shouldn't be on the left. The church should be in the middle. And I think that's much too simplistic because it has the conversation begin on the terms of the culture. The church is not to be in the middle of a left-right world. The church, I submit to you, is to be a species of its own kind, confounding left, right, and middle, and living from the center of God's life and love. The church is to be an alien species that when people look at us, they go, who in the world are these people? We are confounding to the world around us. We are in it, but we're not of it. And so the disciples want to call down fire on the Samaritans. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We are called to offer a countercultural vision of what the world can look like under my rule and under my reign. And so, as followers of Jesus, our goal, friends, is to create a culture that's marked by sacrificial love. It's marked by holding together grace and truth. It's, it's marked by forgiveness and justice. We're holding together things that the world neatly compartmentalizes and neatly separates. To be an alternative culture means that we are first critiquing ourselves as the church. Before we start condemning everybody else out there, which is not a recipe I believe Jesus calls us to anyway, but we are called to look within our own selves and the ways that we are inconsistent with the way of Jesus. We are to work to see individuals and their unique stories and their unique experiences. We are called to exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We are called to live not by dominance, but by service. We are called not to dehumanize, but to humanize in the name of Jesus. We are a community that works for life. And whether we're talking about life in the womb of a mother or whether we're talking about the protection of those who are experiencing violence because of their gender identity. We are called to be a people who work for life. That the church is to be the place that offers healing for the world around us in such a way that this spills out into the larger culture around us. And what I see in the story is a remarkable irony. It's ironic, this passage in Luke chapter 9. Because Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, it says. That is basically saying he is about to take on the sins of the world. He's about to die for humanity. He's about to destroy the power of the devil and sin. He's about to show that death has met its match. He's about to die for his enemies... And as he's heading in that direction, his disciples want to kill his enemies. And so what does Jesus say? 
after they say, Lord, should we call down fire? He turns to his disciples and rebukes them. And I think, friends, Jesus is rebuking us, rebuking the church, letting us know there's a different way of being in the world. There's a different way of holding together aspects of human life that are often compartmentalized. There's a different way of working for justice and compassion and forgiveness and holding these things together. And the question is, will we be that kind of alien species that makes no sense to the world? Or will we be formed by left or right? Jesus turns to his disciples and rebukes them. And he goes to the cross. And we are reminded that Jesus saves the world not through dominance. Jesus saves the world through self-giving love. He saves the world through humility. He saves the world by dying for the world. And this makes no sense to the world, nor should it. And this is what we are invited into. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment. I want to make this simple because I know I've covered a lot of ground here today. I want to come back to those three words, anger, fear, pride, arrogance. I imagine there are people in our church, people watching online. You think about the rapid changes in our culture and it fills you with anger. And certainly there are things to be angry about, but when your entire existence is rooted in anger, we're missing out on what it means to follow Jesus. For some of us, you've lived a life of fear. You think about the rapid changes in sexuality, you think about your children. You think about how they are being influenced. And you live in fear. Or maybe you think, I know exactly what this world needs. And you believe that it's your responsibility through dominance to kind of take back this country. And yet Jesus says, my way is not one of anger, not one of fear, not one of dominance. It's one of self-giving love. It's not escape from a culture. It's proper engagement with it. It's not overlooking abuses and oppression. It's engaging it in the way of my kingdom. What's dominating your life today? Anger? Fear? Pride? What might the Holy Spirit be inviting you to receive today? Peace? Love? Joy? 
mercy, compassion, truth, humility. Lord, we confess that we have often been formed by the forces of anger and fear and dominance. The church has often not looked like the way you called us to. Give us grace by your spirit. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. May we be people who confound the world. May we be people who are marked by self-giving love. And may we be people marked by humility and curiosity. May we be people who reflect Jesus and the way of his kingdom. And so, thank you, Father, for this gift of worship, the gift of Holy Scripture. We sing to you now in response these words of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's sing together, friends. You made me at my lowest moment. You saw me at my very worst. When I expected disappointment, love was all I heard. My sin was deep. Your grace was deeper. My shame was wide. Your arms are wider. My guilt was great. Your love was greater still. You ran to me when I was naked. You clothed me in your righteousness. You pulled me from the depths of darkness to your light again. Oh, into your light again. My sin was deep. Your grace was deeper. My shame was wide. Your arms were wider. My guilt was great. Your love was great. Oh, hi, the love of my Savior, the love of my Savior. 
team come to my right. Here's what I know to be true about the world we live in. It's really easy to be infected by anger, fear, dominance. It's the, um, the rate of transmission is very high. Remember when we talked about Transmissibility was a word that we all became familiar with. The transmissibility of COVID-19. Remember that? And the transmission rate of anger, of anxiety, of control, of pride, that stuff infects everyone. And so, here's the invitation. When we come to church, when we gather for worship, Every Sunday is an opportunity for us to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. He's king. He's making all things new. It's also an opportunity for us to say to ourselves, I'm not living in the freedom of his reign today, of his rule today. I'm still stuck. And every week we're stuck in some area, which is why every single week, a great opportunity for us to gather and worship together because we get to be reminded of the bondage-breaking power of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to break fear off of you today. He wants to break anger off of you today. But Pastor Rich, didn't Jesus flip tables from time to time? I know what some of you are going to already say to me downstairs in the lobby. He flipped a table from time to time. He flipped a table. I get it. And there are things to be upset about. I, I get it. I think you've heard my preaching over the years to know this. But when your life is about flipping tables everywhere you go, I mean, come on now. No one's inviting you to the next picnic. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, brother, that was the food. That was lunch. When when you are formed by corrosive anger, it'll destroy you and destroy the people around you, which is what's happening in our world. When your life is marked by corrosive fear, there are moments to be afraid. God gave us our bodies and anxiety for a reason. There's a dog chasing you down Queens Boulevard. Anxiety says, this is a legitimate reason to be afraid. Run. That's good. That's good. That's good. But when your life is driven by anxiety, we do great damage in the world. When your life is marked by control, dominance, it's inconsistent with the way of Jesus. I wonder what's dominating your life today. And where is Jesus calling you to be set free? Our prayer team would love to pray for you for whatever needs you have. 
And I also want to make an invitation. I imagine some of you came to church today. You're watching online. Maybe this is your first time in church in a while. Maybe you've given up on the church because you said to yourself, the church has just been co-opted by political powers. And maybe you try to give up on the church. And I want to offer an alternative vision to you today of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to show up in this world. And maybe today you're hearing God speaking your name, calling you to himself. Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. Jesus is inviting you to surrender your life to him. And I just say that straight out. You are surrendering your life to something right now. Jesus invites you to surrender his life, your life to him because he surrendered his life for you. And he wants to lead you into joy and peace and life and love. And maybe today you sense God tugging at your heart. That is the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart this day. And so I want to invite you, whether you come forward for prayer, whether you scan that QR code and one of our pastors follow up with you, or maybe you want to get baptized. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you say, I want to take the next step of baptism, which, by the way, is just a way of saying my allegiance is to Jesus Christ. That's what happens when you get baptized. You're not just saying, I was once blind, but now I see. You're saying, my allegiance is not to any political powers of the world. My allegiance is to Jesus Christ and the way of his kingdom. That's what baptism is. And so maybe today you're saying, I'm I'm ready to make that declaration. My life belongs to Jesus. We want to help you take that next step. There are resources available online, as we've been doing every single week. And so if you go to newlife.nyc slash journaling, I know I gave you a lot today. And I want to encourage you to listen again throughout the course of the week. Maybe do that with the journal in hand to reflect on the ways that Jesus is calling you to show up in this world. With that said, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. With your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord pour out his love on you. May the Lord shine upon you and give you peace. May you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, demonstrating a life, being a community that confounds the world that makes no sense to the world. May God anoint you to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God. May he fill you with the Holy Spirit. May he set you free from the various points of bondage that you find yourself in. May he cover you in his love. I bless you all in the strong and the beautiful and the resurrected name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Amen.